Well, good evening. My name is Brian Parks. For those who may not have had a chance to meet me yet, I hope I get a chance to meet you. Uh, it's really, really wonderful to see all your faces, uh, even if it is mask to mask. It's good to be together as a church. Some of you may know the name Martin Luther. Martin Luther was at one point in time a Catholic monk who eventually became a leading figure in the Protestant Reformation in the late 1400s, early 1500s. He famously wrote what is called the 95 Theses, which were arguments against practices of the Roman Catholic Church. He was excommunicated from the church and called to answer before a tribunal of church leaders. He knew that he could be executed for opposing the church, which was wed together with the state. The tribunal called on him to denounce what he had written as untrue, to say that it was false. Who was he going to obey? The stakes were high. The church leaders, or what he believed the word of God declared to be true. Luther's answer was to the point. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Luther chose to obey God rather than men. Now we may not stand before powerful councils that are demanding that we renounce our obedience to Christ, but each of us must make that same choice each and every day. Do we obey God or do we obey man? That's the decision that the apostles faced in our passage tonight. In last week's passage, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healed a 40-year-old man who had been lame from birth. He had never walked until that day. And a huge crowd gathered, seeing this man walking and leaping and praising God. And so, of course, Peter preached the gospel to these people. Our passage is in Acts chapter 4, which Michael just read to us. If you'll have it open in front of you, that would be really helpful because it continues this gripping true story. And the message in this passage for us tonight as a church is that we should pray and boldly proclaim the gospel despite all opposition. Pray and boldly proclaim the gospel despite all opposition. Well, last week's passage ended with Peter's last words to the crowd of thousands that had gathered there on the temple grounds in what's called Solomon's portico. And in the first four verses of our passage, we see the response to his preaching. Two totally different responses. On the one hand, many who heard him preach the risen Jesus, they believed, and many more became followers of Jesus Christ. And so if you look in verse four, it says that we're told that believers had grown to number close to 5,000 by this point. 
Now it says men in verse four, and so it could be that there were twice as many if they were counting women. We don't really know. But there were a lot of Christians by this point. But the other response to Peter and John's preaching was the opposite. The priests, the Sadducees, and the temple guard, they hear them preaching that the Christ, who the people who trust in Christ will be raised from the dead, and so they arrest them so that they can stand before the Jewish council the next day and answer for what they've been teaching. Now, Sadducees, as a religious group, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. But being arrested didn't stop Peter and John the next day. And the first point this evening is proclaim with boldness. Proclaim with boldness. And we see it in verses 1 through 16. The next day, all the Jewish leaders gather together. It's called the Sanhedrin. All the members of the high priest's family were there, the rulers, the elders. And these, of course, were the people who had condemned Jesus just a few months before. And they put Peter and John and even the healed man in front of the council. It must have been an intimidating experience for them. These were the men who had opposed Jesus and had had him executed. If they could execute Jesus, surely they could have these Galileans executed. And their question, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now they were speaking about the healing of the man, of course. What a frightening moment this must have been for them. And yet God was with them. God in the person of the Holy Spirit had filled them on the day of Pentecost. He had filled them and equipped them with peace and joy and boldness, which is exactly what they needed in this moment. Boldness to be faithful witnesses to the Lordship of Jesus. And so Peter began to bear witness to Christ. First, he answered their simple question, by what name? He said, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But Peter didn't stop there whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. (laughs) I think he offended every single person in the room with that statement. Peter's not holding back. He's not being diplomatic. He's telling them the truth. But Peter wanted to tell them more than just whose power and name had healed the man. Look with me at verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, Peter isn't just making up his own metaphor here to refer to Jesus. He's quoting to them an Old Testament verse from Psalm 118 that shows how important Jesus was. This is the exact same verse, in fact, from Psalm 118 that Jesus had quoted to the religious authorities when they confronted him in Jerusalem just days before the crucifixion. Peter wants them to know how important this Jesus was and is. The Jewish leaders are the builders, Peter is saying. They should have been the ones who were spiritually building Israel into a people who were faithful to God. By teaching them, by shepherding them, by modeling righteous lives. But they had done the opposite. A cornerstone 
is a keystone that builders would use to align the whole building that was under construction. And if you chose the cornerstone incorrectly or you laid it incorrectly, the building would not have integrity. Nothing would be right about the building. It was that important. And Jesus taught about himself. And now Peter is declaring that this verse is prophesying that the cornerstone of the nation should have been Jesus. But the leaders of Israel rejected Jesus. They rejected the cornerstone that God had chosen for them. Now Peter always draws the spiritual conclusions from the miracles that we see him perform. This always happens. He doesn't let the miracle just stand. He goes straight to the gospel. And his spiritual conclusion is there in verse 12. Look there with me. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, salvation was a concept that would be familiar to any Jew. The scriptures were clear. God was holy and loving, but mankind from Adam and Eve onward had disobeyed God and lived unholy, rebellious, unloving lives. And Israel's history had demonstrated that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And therefore, judgment and the wrath of God would be the result for every single person on the planet who had ever lived, not just Israel, all people. The Israelites knew that. So when Peter referred to salvation, they knew what he was talking about. And they knew that people needed salvation. To be saved was to be saved from God's wrath, his punishment for sin. Every Israelite knew they needed salvation because of their sin. And that's still true today. All people have a sinful nature. We sin. We sin in our actions. We sin with our words against one another. And we sin in our thoughts for sure. All people will therefore be objects of God's wrath on the day of judgment if it were not for the salvation of God. We don't need saving so much from hell as we need saving from God's wrath. Peter wants them to know, and he wants us to know, the only way to escape God's wrath and judgment is through faith in the cornerstone, Jesus. In other words, the only way to be saved from God is to be saved by God. The God-man Jesus. This is the gospel. What Peter laid out for them in that one verse was the punchline to the gospel. There is no other name by which people can be saved than the name of Jesus. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Oh, I pray that you believe the gospel. I pray that you know the gospel. I pray that you are feasting on the gospel day in and day out, week in and week out. The gospel is what we need for salvation. The gospel is what we need in order to know God. Now, Dubai is a generally tolerant place, and many of you know that the popular idea here would be that all religions are ultimately the same. I, I think it's because people want to get along with one another, and there's so much diversity here. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to get along with one another. But Peter didn't believe that all religions were the same. And we don't believe that either. And the Bible doesn't teach anything close to that. 
Jesus is the only Lord and Savior. There are no other real gods. Only Jesus can save you from your sin because your sin has to be paid for. And Jesus is the only one who took what should have been yours and put it on himself so that we could go free. We could become the righteousness of God because he was punished for our sins. That's the gospel. Do you believe what the Bible teaches about salvation in Christ alone? In the workplace, are you tempted to agree with your co-workers that all religions are essentially the same just to keep the peace? Oh, friends, brothers and sisters, when you get into spiritual conversations with people who aren't Christians, don't be afraid to get around to explaining that salvation comes only through Jesus. I don't think you've shared the gospel if you've not eventually gotten to that point. Yes, you can have multiple conversations to get there, but oh, do get there, please. If we don't make it clear that only Jesus can save, we've not really shared the hope that God has made available to us through Jesus. Now it's it's the leader's turn to respond beginning in verse 13. Look there with me. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. If you're a Christian, God can use you to give bold and persuasive testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what your personality is. It doesn't matter how young of a Christian you are or if you're just beginning to learn more about the Bible. If uneducated common men like the apostles can be used powerfully by God when they're up against the educated and the powerful of the world, then God can use you too. God can work through you if you're a Christian. Why? Because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the presence of God. God has appointed you for this. God had promised the disciples that they wouldn't need to worry about what they'd say when arrested or dragged before the authorities. Why? Because God would guide them through the Spirit. Luke 21, 15, Jesus said, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Brothers and sisters, you and I have the very presence of God in us. That should make us bold. He will give you a mouth and wisdom if you're confronted. Depend on him. Trust in him. The religious leaders had them leave the room, but they decided that there was nothing they could do to refute what all the people could plainly see. This man had been healed. And so they brought them back in and they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John's reply in verses 19 and 20 again shows where their true allegiance and loyalty was. Look at that verse beginning in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. On the one hand, the religious leaders who had great power over them were commanding them to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. On the other hand, Jesus, the risen Lord of heaven and earth, had commissioned them to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And they're saying, who do you want us to listen to? (laughs) You or him? 
Are you resolved to obey God above any earthly authority? Even those who could do you great harm? Now is the time to decide, brothers and sisters, rather than the moment of crisis. Now is the time to decide. In fact, we prepare ourselves for that day, if it might come, by obeying Christ, for standing for Christ, for not denying Christ each and every day when our lives aren't being threatened, when the only thing that we might suffer from is ridicule or being cast aside by friends. Many people who come to the UAE for the first time believe that they can't speak about their faith in Jesus. But the same clear command that Jesus gave the apostles is a command for us. We must speak about Jesus. We must share the gospel. This is not an optional command. Christ is Lord and King, and if you're a Christian, you've been commissioned directly by God to share the good news of Jesus no matter what country you live in, and what the laws say. Decide for yourself who to obey, God or man. To follow Jesus is to live in obedience to him above all. Peter and John were released, but they had boldly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus despite the threatening opposition of the council. They must have known that more opposition would be coming their way. Jesus promised it would come, and even that some of them would be killed because of the gospel and because of testifying about him. But rather than run and hide, the apostles gathered and prayed for more boldness to speak the gospel. And that's the second point this evening. Pray for boldness. Pray for boldness. We see that in verses 23 through 31. And just right there in that first verse, 23, it says that when they were released, they went to their friends. I mean, that really stuck out to me. When you're experiencing persecution and pressure from those who are opposed to your faith, who are the first people that you turn to? They went to the church, their friends. That's one of the purposes that God calls us to be a member of a local church so that we have friends in the Lord who we can turn to in times of crisis when we're being threatened. And that's why we should seek to deepen our friendships with one another in the church. Put time and energy into growing your friendships in the church and don't hesitate to turn to one another when times get tough. Let it be us that you turn to first. We want to stand with you. We want to stand together. Did these church members discuss strategies for how to respond to the Jewish leaders? Did they make plans for what to do next? Maybe, eventually, but first they prayed together. They prayed together. They had stood in front of the threatening counsel of Jewish leaders, and now they knew that they needed to take counsel with their rightful leader, the Lord God. And their prayer, their prayer here is a model of how we should pray. First, they addressed the Lord as sovereign, that he was in control. They affirmed that when they started praying. They affirmed that he had created everything. He had created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They affirmed that 
he was a God who revealed himself to his people. Specifically that he had spoken through the prophet David by the Holy Spirit. They remembered scripture that certainly the Holy Spirit had brought to their mind that had some application in their current situation. And so they quoted Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Sound familiar? They were seeing these verses played out before their very eyes. The Jewish leaders, along with the Gentile rulers, had plotted against Jesus. But though they had killed him, they had not defeated him. In fact, even in their sin, God was working out his sovereign purposes. And in verses 27 and 28, they again affirm that the sins that had been committed against Jesus were actually done according to God's plan. They were, as verse 28 says, predestined to take place. There it is again. God is sovereign. We're going to run past it as we continue reading through the book of Acts. And if you continue reading through your Bible, you'll come upon it time after time after time. God is sovereign. He's in control. He's working out his plan for history and all that happens in every person's life, in all the events of the world, both wicked people and wonderful people of faith. But there's no indication that God's sovereignty excuses the sins of men. And finally... These disciples made a bold request of God. They ask for God's protection, right? No, no, they don't ask for God's protection. They pray for God to take notice of the leader's threats and give them more boldness. That's what they ask for, more boldness. When you're faced with threats and opposition to your faith, will you pray for it to stop? And that's all you pray? Or will you pray to be bold no matter what happens? Even if the Lord wants you perhaps to go through this persecution and trial and tribulation. It could be. This reminds me of the book of Daniel's story of the three faithful Israelite companions of Daniel. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they had refused to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's false gods. And so they were threatened with being thrown into a fiery furnace to be burned alive. So they were dragged before the king. He asked why they hadn't bowed down. Their answer when he threatened, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand O king but if not be it known to you O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up these disciples of Christ in our passage are filled with the same kind of courage and they were praying for more Pray for boldness, brothers and sisters. Pray for boldness. Pray that we won't back down when we're being told to stop speaking about Jesus. 
if these are the positive actions that we should listen to, we should also consider that the opposite actions would be a danger for us. And so we know that prayerlessness endangers our faithful witness to Christ and the gospel. If you find yourself ducking, you know, at work when people want to talk about religion, because you don't want to get into that conversation, maybe it's because you've not been praying. Will you pray for boldness? I'm praying that you will. I'm praying for us. Let's pray together for that. Finally, they draw their prayer to a close, fully expecting God to keep working miracles and wonders through them, presumably so that they can keep proclaiming the gospel. Did you see the components of their prayer? Let me just recount it one more time. They recounted the characteristics of God. They recounted verses that might apply to their situation. They prayed about their specific situation and they made requests for how God might work in them to glorify himself. What a great model for prayer. If you find yourself not knowing how to pray in situations, turn back to Acts chapter 4. Follow their pattern. Let's learn from their prayer, church, and pray like them. I think we can be confident that God will answer us in similar ways to how he answered their prayer. And we see how God responded to them in verse 31. Look there with me. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God was letting them know that he was there with them. He'd heard their prayer. He knew the situation that they were in and that he was king and he was in control rather than their opponents. The early church father, John Chrysostom, said of the room shaking in this passage, the whole place was shaken and that left them all the more unshaken. Some of you might be wondering what it means that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Hadn't they been filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Were they filled and then emptied and then filled and then emptied? Was, was this some kind of endless cycle of the Holy Spirit leaving them and coming back and leaving them and coming back? Now this is a question arising from the text that reminds us that we need to keep reading in our Bibles when we have a question oftentimes. And we need to keep reading the rest of Acts. And beyond that, honestly, we need to keep reading the rest of the New Testament to properly understand how the Holy Spirit interacts with believers. The best way to understand that is to say this. There is one baptism in the Spirit, and there are many fillings of the Spirit. There is one baptism in the Spirit, and there are many fillings of the Spirit. Jesus had promised that they would be baptized in the Spirit before he had ascended into heaven. And that had happened on the day of Pentecost for those who repented and believed in Christ. But we will see here and throughout the book of Acts that God fills believers over and over again with the Spirit. And so we're tempted to think about the Holy Spirit as if he is some kind of substance, like a liquid, like water like a bucket that gets filled in, up and then emptied out. But it's not like that. The Holy Spirit is not a liquid. The Holy Spirit is spirit. The Spirit never leaves believers 
if they've repented and trusted in Christ. He fills them afresh with the Spirit in order to face particular trials and situations requiring wholehearted dedication to Him. Think of it this way. When someone's exerting themselves in sports or, or maybe just hard physical labor, maybe you're a mom and you've been chasing kids around the house all day long, and you feel like your energy is running low, suddenly then there is a burst of energy a renewed energy to keep pushing on, to keep exerting yourself. I know some of you moms are saying, yeah, when am I going to get that? We call it a second wind, okay? If you're an athlete, you know what a second wind is. God, who has permanently poured his Holy Spirit into every believer, will oftentimes give us a fresh filling or a second wind of the Spirit's strength to do what he's called us to do. If you have doubts about how permanent the Spirit's presence is in the life of the Christian, consider just one verse. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that's Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And so that verse alone clarifies for us that anyone who repents and trusts in Christ is sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit becomes a permanent guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. When? Until we acquire possession of it. In other words, when Christ returns and we are glorified. And so the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to baptize us in Him and unite us to Christ when we come to faith. And then we're free to call out to God to be filled again and again and again for different situations that we face. Their challenge 2,000 years ago and ours as well today, what is it? To be filled with boldness to speak the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ against all opposition. Once again, I find myself longing to live like they lived here. Don't you? Don't you? In 1552, five young French graduates of seminary in Switzerland, all of them in their 20s, returned to France, which was under Catholic rule. They were arrested and thrown into prison immediately for preaching the gospel. During their imprisonment, they wrote letters to a pastor in Geneva, Switzerland. His name happened to be John Calvin. They wrote to him, We are bold to say and affirm that we shall derive more profit in this school for our salvation than has ever been the case in any place where we have studied. We praise God with all our heart and give him undying thanks that he has been pleased to give us by his grace not only the theory of his word, but also the practice of it. He has brought us out to be his witnesses and given us constancy to confess his name and maintain the truth of his holy word before those who are unwilling to hear it, indeed, who persecute it with all their force. One year after they had been thrown into prison, they were called out and burned at the stake. What boldness for Christ. None of us is facing a situation quite that desperate, but many brothers and sisters, both near and far, are. 
And it doesn't matter our particular situation. God calls us to live each day with the boldness of these men and women in the pages of Acts. The lesson for us is clear. God will give us strength through his Holy Spirit to pray and boldly proclaim the gospel against all opposition. Let him find us faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for sending Christ. We praise you that Christ died on the cross to atone for our sins so that we might become the righteousness of God. And we praise you that you've sent the Spirit as a seal and a guarantee to us to give us joy, to give us peace, to give us assurance, and to make us bold. Will you do that for us, Lord? In Christ's name, amen. Please stand with me as we sing our last song.